You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. It is utter foolishness to not believe what God has revealed and proclaimed in this book. Utter foolishness. And let me tell you the numero uno, number one message of this book. The red line that runs from Genesis all the way to the book of the Revelation is Jesus Christ. He said, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. God reveals himself to mankind in many ways. Just look at the beauty and the complexity of the world around you. But the primary way is through his word. The Bible is a living book. You can read the same passage a hundred times and find a new and deeper truth every time. At the center of that truth is Jesus. He is truth. As Pastor Danny will point out in today's message, everything we find in scripture ultimately points us towards him and our need for the salvation that he came to provide. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Acts, chapter 17, with today's edition of The Living Word. God who made the world, everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It means to turn. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. But in reading that, you have to know that the fruit in Thessalonica and Berea was much greater than the fruit in Athens. And I believe portions of our text tell us why. Let me read once more the first part of verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And verse 21. 
All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Epicurus was an ancient Greek philosopher. He believed in attaining a happy, tranquil life characterized by what he called aponia, the absence of pain and fear. He taught that pleasure and pain are the measures of what is good and bad. Pleasure is good, pain is bad. That death is the end of the body, that you don't have to worry about anything called the soul, that the gods do not reward or punish humans, that the universe is infinite and eternal, and that events in the world are ultimately based on the motions and interactions of atoms moving in empty space. Epicureans believed in the gods, but that these gods had nothing to do with the world. They were basically practical agnostics who believed pleasure is the chief end of man and that a simple lifestyle is the most pleasurable, avoiding extremes on either side. The Stoics were pantheists. They believed everything is God. They taught that virtue is sufficient for happiness, that self-control and fortitude were the means of overcoming destructive emotions. A primary aspect of Stoicism involved improving an individual's moral and ethical well-being. Let me quote one statement that they taught. Virtue consists in a will that is in agreement with nature. Stoicism became the foremost popular philosophy among the educated elite in the ancient Greek and Roman Empire. When we think of ancient Athens, we think of very educated people, very intellectual people. We think of names like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Athens attracted intellectuals from around the globe. Aristotle was also a Greek philosopher, a student of Plato, and a teacher of Alexander the Great. He wrote on many subjects. Listen to the list. I mean, my goodness. Talk about a smart guy. Physics, metaphysics, poetry, theater, music, logic, rhetoric, politics, government, ethics, biology, and zoology. Together with Plato and Socrates, Aristotle is one of the most important figures in founding what we know as Western philosophy. He was the first to create a comprehensive system of Western philosophy encompassing morality, aesthetics, logic, science, politics, and metaphysics. Socrates, a very interesting character. Socrates was also a Greek philosopher. He's credited as also one of the founders of Western philosophy. He became renowned for his contribution to the field of ethics. Let me give you some of his ethical statements. There's only one good, knowledge, and one evil, ignorance. Socrates said, to find yourself is to think for yourself. Let me give you this one. Didn't put it on PowerPoint, but you'll enjoy it. By all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> Socrates said, we cannot live better than in seeking to become better. He also along with Aristotle, Plato, helped to lay the foundations of Western philosophy. There is a verse in the Bible that describes the general character of the people of ancient Athens. Here it is. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool. Stop there for just a minute. He's talking about the way they're going to look at you. They're going to look at you as a fool. You're foolish for believing what you believe. You should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Romans 1, 
Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And here's the first lesson from the text. Smart people are not always wise people. And if you look at some scripture, you could actually say correctly, smart people are not usually wise people. And it's not God's fault, it's their fault. Here's what God says about a person who says there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That doesn't mean when you meet an atheist, you immediately call him a fool. God said it twice. Again, Psalm 53, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Smart people are not always wise people. But I'll tell you what else from the text. People are not saved by smarter intellectual messages. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The Bible defines the gospel this way. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came, he died on a cross, he shed his blood to pay for the sin of the world. He was buried so that if you repent, it means to turn, become a follower of Jesus Christ, receive him as your Lord and Savior, your sin can be buried. He rose again so that if you trust him as Savior, you can have new life, eternal life, and everlasting life, and an endless, glorious inheritance. That's the gospel, and a child can understand it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, the gospel, to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Chapter 2, verse 1, 1 Corinthians. And so it is with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse three is fascinating to me. I came to you, Corinth, in weakness, with great fear and trembling. That's fascinating to me. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Why did Paul come to Corinth in weakness with great fear and trembling? All you got to do is go back to our text in Acts 17 and let the opening verse, look at the opening verse in Acts chapter 18. Here's what it says. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. I think Paul is one of the bravest followers of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible. He got beat up most places he went. 
He got beat up in Athens, but not physically. It is not true what we were taught when we were young boys and girls. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is not what the Bible says. The power of life and death is in the tongue. And Paul the apostle, though one of the greatest and bravest followers of Jesus Christ I know of, he was still human. And he got verbally beat up in Athens. And when he got to Corinth, he came in weakness and fear and much trembling. But a point was driven home to him that he already knew. But boy, he would never forget it. And it was so freshly powerful. What was that point? Don't just try to meet them on their level. Don't just quote their poets. Now, some people say Paul was wrong in quoting their poets and trying to meet them on their level. I don't know. All I know is he got beat up verbally in Athens, and it affected him so much, and he went away realizing it is just simply the message of the gospel, and I better not mix my intellect with it in terms of trying to make it more attractive. Now, don't lose that point because we're going to come back to it before we're done. Never mix worldly wisdom with the gospel. Senior year in high school, my oldest son, Tanner, had to write an essay for a college scholarship application. I want to read you a portion of it. For the past few years, there's been something inside of me that has just wanted to debate the facts, and not even the facts, but merely intellectual ideas. Some egomaniac part of me has fought for dominance over intangible thoughts and theories while all along my soul is shied away from the truth of the matter. My son's very smart. He's his mother's side of the family. It's as though I were in a garden hacking away at the leaves of a monstrous weed and taking exceedingly great care not to attack its root. Tonight I realized a profound truth and within the past hour it's made an equally profound impact upon my outlook on life. The truth of Jesus Christ outweighs any issues. Having grown up in a Christian home where I was fed the word of God as daily bread, I knew the truth of Jesus Christ. Having accepted him as my Lord and Savior at a young age, I desired to offer something in return for the gift he bestowed upon me. But somewhere over the course of time, I began to worry more about the issues of life than his truth. I became ignorant to the fact that there is absolutely nothing I can do to return the favor, as it were. My earnest to please God morphed into a vulgar quest to point out the faults of everyone else rather than speak the truth of my Lord. Saddens me to think it hasn't been until my senior year of high school that I've realized my utter failure in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The first three years I spent arguing the reality of a supreme being rather than shining a light upon that being. I've been hacking away at the leaves of a weed when I should have been attacking the root. I sought to strain out a gnat but swallowed a camel. This is the great challenge of my life, to know Christ and preach him uncompromisingly to those around me. All I need do is present the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead for the sake of the world. Upon that truth, God will work what he may in the lives of those I encounter in my lifetime. And I just like to say, that's my boy. (laughs) And the last point, you don't want to miss it. The simplicity of the gospel does not discount the evidence for or the intelligence of truth. For example, there are very intellectual critics of the Bible, and they claim that because the Bible in the original manuscript has been copied and recopied and recopied and recopied over hundreds of years, that the present Bible we have contains massive 
error. But there was a discovery made in 1947 that gives these critics a little bit of a problem. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls contain every book of the Hebrew canon, the original Hebrew canon, except the book of Esther. Massive discovery. Prior to their discovery, the earliest Old Testament texts were called the Masoretic Text, and they are dated from about A.D. 90. One of the most preserved manuscripts of the Dead Sea Scrolls is the Scroll of Isaiah. It's on display in Israel. It's fascinating. The original copy of Isaiah was made about 1,700 years before the Masoretic Text. So critics assume that centuries of copying and recopying must have introduced scribal errors. But the Dead Sea Scrolls prove otherwise. When they, for example, match up the Masoretic text from hundreds of years before with the scroll of Isaiah found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they are virtually exactly the same. God knows how to preserve his word. The only variations were minor slips of the pen and spelling alterations. But the message behind the text was exactly the same. And we're not going to get into them this morning, but the fulfilled Bible prophecies. You can't find a book. There never has been one. There never will be one like this book. You can't find a religion and a book of religion in our world that has the prophecies already fulfilled that our Bible has. If you just take the prophecies of Jesus Christ alone and his first coming, not including the prophecies about his second coming, if you just take those prophecies alone and you're an open-minded, honest person, you have to at least acknowledge, yes, he is the Messiah. And last but not least, there are discoveries and inventions, and I'm only giving you one invention, there's more. Modern military, that's one invention that proves the Bible. Discoveries, and I'll give you one invention that confirm the Bible. Most scholars believe Job, the book of Job in the Old Testament, is the first book ever written in the Bible. It was written over 3,000 years ago. Listen to what I said. Over 3,000 years ago, the book of Job was written. Job chapter 26, first part of verse 7 says, He, God, spreads out the northern skies over empty space. Just a few years ago, astronomers discovered in the northern universe, a black hole. And the materials there are, there's nothing of materials in the rest of the universe like here. It's basically a black hole. Catch this. It's nearly a billion light years across. And it's in the northern universe. But we just discovered it a few years ago. All you had to do is pick up the book of Job and you go, well, you know, I can't see it. I don't know where it is. I don't know what, but there's, you know what? He spreads out the northern skies over empty space, a big black hole. Last part of the verse is also fascinating. He suspends the earth over nothing, just hanging there. You know how many years ago it was that we discovered that the earth is held in place by gravitational forces? Just under 400 years ago, we discovered that the earth is held in place by gravitational forces. But God told us over 3,000 years ago. Cool stuff. Solomon, God used him to pen this, Ecclesiastes chapter one, the wind blows to the south and turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. You know what that describes? The circulation of the atmosphere, which man discovered and without discovering it, his navigation around the world before you had something like GPS was from the circulation of the atmosphere. It gets better. 
Job 28, 25, to establish a weight for the wind. You know when man discovered that wind has weight? The year 1640. You're bored, aren't you? Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. You know when man discovered this? In 1616, a man named William Harvey discovered that blood circulation is the key factor in physical life. Discovering that blood carries oxygen from the lungs, water and nourishment to every cell, maintains the body's temperature, and removes waste material. The life is in the blood. I love this next one. Isaiah 40, verse 22, he sits, God, enthroned above the circle of the earth. It was the sixth century that man discovered at least claim, some of them, that the earth is not flat. The earth is circular. It's round. Even though discovered in the 6th century, it was debated until the 3rd century. Some 300 years of debate. No, it's not circle. No, it's not round. It's flat. No, it's not flat. It's round. No, it's not. It's flat. All you had to do is pick up the Bible, and if you just believe God, you know the earth is round. In Revelation chapter 11, a prophecy yet to be fulfilled, two witnesses during a period known as the Great Tribulation, two witnesses for God will be slain in Jerusalem. For three and a half days, people from every people, tribe, language, and nation, that's the world, that's around the world, will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse them burial. Not until the early 19th and 20th century would you have understand how people from around the world could gaze on two dead bodies in Jerusalem. But we know not a mystery to us. Every major network will be there and it'll be broadcast around the world. And the Bible goes on to tell us the world will be so happy that these guys are dead that they will send gifts to one another. It's the first anti-Christmas led by the Antichrist. This prophecy describes what only we would understand in our world, television. Here's the conclusion. I'm assuming because it's quiet, you're not sleeping. You're listening. It is utter foolishness to not believe what God has revealed and proclaimed in this book. Utter foolishness. And let me tell you the numero uno, number one message of this book. The red line that runs from Genesis all the way to the book of the Revelation is Jesus Christ. He said, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. Let me give you one more from Socrates. Socrates said, all of the wisdom of this world is but a tiny raft upon which we must set sail when we leave this earth. If only there was a firmer foundation upon which to sail, perhaps some divine word. And here it is. And the number one message of this wonderful book is Jesus Christ. His coming, his death on a cross, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. He died for you. He was buried for you. He rose again for you. I think there's somebody here, and maybe even some not physically with us, but you're listening in and watching by way of live stream. Jesus said, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's what's happening to some hearts right now, some souls right now. So I can't do that. I can't. That's the Holy Spirit. And he's drawing you. So that he wants to grant you repentance, repentance. He wants you to turn from the way you're going and become a follower of Jesus Christ. To receive Jesus Christ. 
as your Lord and Savior. And listen, it's the smartest thing you could ever do. It's the wisest thing you could ever do. You've been listening to another edition of The Living Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Fellowship. Thanks for joining us. Have you been enjoying this study in the book of Acts? If so, Pastor Danny has more to share from this series, and we hope that you'll tune in to hear about it. Acts is a powerful book full of incredible things that God did in the early church. Isn't it amazing how he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things? With that in mind, open your heart up to the call that God has on your life. He's gifted you with incredible things that can impact his kingdom in mighty ways. If God can use Paul, he can use you too. If you'd like to hear more of Pastor Danny's messages from this series in the book of Acts, visit ccfstpete.church. Once you're there, click on the media tab and you'll be able to find an archive of past teachings. If you live in or near the St. Petersburg area, we would love to meet you. Visit us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship on Saturdays at 6 p.m. or Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. for a time of worship and Bible study. You can find out more by going to our website, ccfstpete.church. If you're unable to join us in person, no worries. We offer a live stream of our weekend services. Just visit our website and click on the link in the menu. We're glad to know that you're a part of our listening audience, and we hope that you'll continue to desire and search out and study the living word. The power.